You were not created to collect and consume. In our backyard, my wife has all sorts of uh, bird feeders. Anybody been to our house? You've seen out the, the bay window there. That's her, her bird world. And Vid is constantly at war with the squirrels in our neighborhood. <laughs> they are collectors and consumers. All year they collect. So why are they bothering the bird food? Because it's just easy pickings. Birds, they're not collectors like squirrels. Birds are just consumers. And so if you were to compare them, you might say, well, I'd rather be a squirrel than a bird. To collect and to gather, save and to take care of yourself, that's more noble. Isn't the squirrel a little more noble than the bird? Wouldn't I rather be a gatherer and consumer than just a consumer? Well, here's the problem with both of those. You and I are neither squirrels nor birds. We are human beings. You are eternal. You have an eternal purpose. You're not called to be just a consumer. You're also not called just to be a collector or a gatherer and a consumer. You are called to be a contributor. To add to life and to make a difference in bringing about his plan for this planet. That's what we're looking at today. When the Bible talks about the big life, about greatness, Jesus himself sets the standard when he reminds us that the real big life, the greatest life of all, is not in being served. It's not in consuming. It's in serving. Let's take a few minutes looking at greatness, the big life, according to Jesus himself. Mark chapter 10. The disciples were constantly debating who among them would be greatest in the kingdom of God. I, I can't imagine what it was like for Jesus, knowing why he'd come to earth, to hear these disciples constantly get it wrong about what it meant to live the big life, the one that God had for them, and to think that they were supposed to reach for authority, reach for greatness. And in this particular situation, we see the sons of thunder. In another passage, we know that they were encouraged by their mother, stage mom, <laughs> dance mom. They were encouraged by their mother to approach Jesus about getting the number one and number two seed in the kingdom. And we see this interaction beginning at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And very ignorantly, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. He's speaking about suffering. They don't understand, nor at this moment in their life could they drink that cup. That will come years from now when their lives have been transformed by the cross and by the resurrection of Jesus and by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They will drink that cup, but now that's not what they're picturing. He says, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. 
And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, he's speaking about himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the same Jesus who, when this debate and this conflict continues right into the final Passover that Jesus would share with them before his crucifixion, the very night he was to be betrayed, and they're still debating about who gets the right and the left side. And the scripture says, in the midst of that, Jesus just quietly gets up, puts a towel around his waist, gets on his knees, and one by one goes around that room. Could you imagine the silence and the time it took for Jesus, one person at a time, to go around and not just symbolically wipe feet, but to actually wash the grime of the dusty roads off of those feet. Imagine that. Imagine the creator of the world at whose feet someday every knee will bow, getting down at the feet of mere men who were acting pitifully and served them. And they said, do you see what I've shown you? Do you see what I've given you? If I, the creator of all, if I, the one who is with the Father, if I, who am the redeemer of the world, the Christ, if I would wash your feet, don't you get it? You should serve one another. Wash each other's feet. Now, this is sermon enough right here. If Jesus washed feet, there isn't a person here that can ever say when an opportunity comes up to serve, that's not my calling. That's not my gifting. Do you think Jesus was called to wash feet? Do you think Jesus' gifting was that? We are without excuse when opportunities arrive and we say, that's below me, or it's not my ability, or I don't have time, or it's not, I don't feel called, you should see Jesus on his knees washing your feet and then make a decision out of that. Let's move on and look at how God intends to use us. We're gonna be in the book of Ephesians and we'll start in Ephesians chapter two. Let's say this together, good and loud. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's plan for you, and we see three things in it. One, you are a unique work of God. We are his workmanship. That particular form of the word is only used one other time. In Romans chapter 1, when Paul refers to the whole of creation being God's grand work, what he's saying is you are God's unique and magnificent act of creation. In some ways, we're all the same. But isn't it true in other ways? All of us are different. God creates with endless variety, and you rise to the top. You personally 
are a result of God's creative genius. And the second thing we see is that God has work for you to do. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then the third thing we recognize is that this has always been part of God's plan. God had a job for you before you were a gleam in your daddy and mommy's eyes. He had already prepared work for you as part of his eternal purposes. You are a unique work of God's creative genius, particularly wired to serve in his eternal plan, part of a plan that has been in place since eternity past. You are here to fulfill that purpose. Now, what would that look like if a whole body of believers captured that and shaped their lives around those priorities? We go forward two chapters and we see a beautiful picture of the body of Christ in Ephesians chapter four. I'm gonna read the whole passage and then make some comments on it. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. If you're reading along with me, say that last phrase. As each part does its work. So there are a progression of thoughts here. In the beginning chapters of Ephesians, Paul reminds us that as part of the redeeming work that God has done, which is by grace alone, through faith, you, having been saved by grace, are God's workmanship. And you have a special role to play, and God had it in mind before you were even born. He has an eternal plan for you. Now he progresses forward. What would a whole church look like if everybody caught that? And without teaching heavily on Ephesians 4, let me just quickly list three things that come out of this passage. First, all God's people are to serve, right? As everyone does their parts, the only way the whole body grows, the only way we fulfill the mission that God's called us to, the only way we are fully conformed to Christ is when everybody does the part that they're called to do. The second thing is that we each have a specific role to play. There are those that God has called and gifted and enabled to lead the church, and they need to be allowed to lead. 
out of servant leadership. We're foot washers. But the job of leadership is to equip and liberate saints. That's you, all of you who know Jesus, you're saints. All the saints do the work of ministry. And then he explains the diversity. We all have a part to play. And then finally, and this wording on this point is very important. You, I, and we are incomplete when you don't do your part. You are incomplete because you're not fulfilling the job that God wants you to fulfill. You're not growing into maturity. I am not complete, and every other person. In fact, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm not complete without you. Little Jerry Maguire, turn to each other and say, you complete me. (laughs) I'm not complete without you. I'm stumbling along because there's something you were meant to bring. We may not be aware of it because we've learned to settle for what we can achieve without it. We may not even know what's missing, but trust me, we're missing something. Each person in this room is missing it because you're not contributing. We also together are not complete without it. The body of Christ is missing something without it. Heard a, an illustration Rick Warren talked about was what, what if in the body, because the Bible describes this as a body and every, every part is important, what if the liver decided to take a vacation? What if the liver said, I'm just tired. I don't get any of the real publicity. I'm not the heart. I'm tired of not getting attention. I'm exhausted from the work. And I'm tired of taking everybody's crap, which is quite literally what a liver does. I'm just going to check out for a while. Well, what would happen to the body if the liver checked out? It would die. See, that's how important your role is. Now, here's a dramatic statement, but I think true. I'm guessing there isn't a single church in our city that is operating the way God intended it to operate because the majority of believers are not doing their part. So what I'm asking you to consider is what would happen if you did your part? Now, you may be saying, I don't know what that is. That's not what I'm wrestling with right now. What I'm wrestling with is the fact that you're not stepping up. You're gathering and consuming, even from this church. And therefore, this church and the cause of Christ is suffering. Think about that. Think about how important you are. That's not not meant to dump guilt but it's meant to inspire you and help you think, I have a role to play. I'm God's workmanship. What would happen here if we were operating on all cylinders because you were doing your part? And what would happen in the city? What would happen in the city if believers got off their behinds and started serving? We cry for this city But in the middle of our crying for God to change the city, what we're really saying is, here I am, Lord. Send Joe. I didn't plan on getting into all that, but I guess it's obviously on my heart. I believe it's on God's heart. So let me just for a few minutes look at how do I step up to this. If, I, if I'm motivated, I'm saying, I want to be a part of a place that everybody's doing their part. I want to see what God could really do when the whole body is growing and reaching its full maturity in Christ, and we're operating on all cylinders. I want to see what this city could become, and I want in. How do I know how God shaped me? Well, I want to just begin by saying, 
It really doesn't matter on one level. Jesus wasn't shaped for foot washing. He just washed. Sometimes it's just about serving. And we make it so specialized that we miss the whole point. The whole point is to get busy and to touch lives where you are. And so it's really not as complicated as we think. But I do want to talk about three ways that God prepares us for ministry. And the first is in your nature, who you are, the kind of person God made when he made you, your personality and your passions. God uses them. I'm so grateful that Vit and I are so different about things. I'm big picture, she's details. I am most often grateful about the fact that Vit's details. <laughs> most often I'm grateful about that. You know, I care for the body. I love people, but my wife is passionate about people individually. I am doing my part. I'm operating the way God made me when I'm inspiring all of us. My wife is doing what she's meant to do. When she's crying alongside you, blessing you, and showing up with something that can tangibly touch you. That's a heart issue. That's a passion issue. What are you passionate about? Passion may express itself in all sorts of activities, your hobbies, your job, right? And if we get a job that we can be passionate about, that's great. But those passions, God gave you. How is he using them? How are they being directed in a way that they're contributing to what God wants to do in lives around you? Look with me at uh, Psalm 139, verses 13 to 14. Let's say this together. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. The word for inmost being in the Hebrew is, are you ready for it? Liver. <laughs> it is. It's liver. The transliteration would be, you created my heart. For the ancient world, the liver was the center of the soul. It was the passion. And so that's why he says, you created my inmost being, who I am, the essence of me. God made that. I love how the psalmist, this is really quite colorful. You knit me in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. He's talking about himself. It's like he's standing in front of a, of a full-length mirror saying, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are marvelous. I know that full well. That's kind of over the top, isn't it? No, it's true. And all of you ought to feel that pride in the fact that God wired you for who you are. Senior pastor I worked under two churches ago, Gary Moore. Gary's a stoic, the guy that could stand up at a funeral when everyone else was falling apart and say the right words. And I used to say, I want to be Gary. I want to be Gary. Now you know I'm not. <laughs> My heart shows up and I get tired of it. I get tired of, of always losing it every week. And I know that there are people that wonder if it's real. I, I want you to know, if I could be any other way, I would. But I know it's part of how God wired me, and I, I've just learned to trust that he uses that. 
How we're wired is an important part of it. What are your passions? Second, your abilities. Three types of abilities, natural, learned, and spiritual. Natural abilities are the things that you were born with. You just can do it. Like in Vitt's case, she's very detail-oriented. She has the ability to look at all sorts of things and just work them so they all get done. Musical abilities, creative abilities. We all have these kind of abilities that you were born with. Then there's the learned abilities, things that because of your experience in life, your job, you had to learn. God wants to use those learned skills. And then there's spiritual abilities. We call them spiritual gifts. There are three or four key passages in the Bible that talk about the grace gifts that God gives us and the service-oriented gifts fall into roughly a list of 15. Now, does the Bible teach that we're all gifted spiritually? It does. But we have turned it into something. We've combined all these passages and created what we think is a closed list of abilities. And I would challenge you to find a single place in Scripture that suggests that the particular spiritual gifts listed in the Bible are the complete set. We've tried to turn it into a personality profile test. That's not how the Bible treats the gifting. Two things about spiritual gifts. One, if you look at that list, we're supposed to do all of them. There isn't a single one of those spiritual gifts that as believers in Christ we're not to try to do. It's just that some of us are more equipped by the Holy Spirit to get some of those things done, and that's where the gifting kicks in. So it's not meant to make you a spiritual specialist. So when we do these seminars on spiritual gifting, you don't then sit back and say, well, I have the gift of teaching. I'll just wait for a position to open. That's not how it works. Secondly, every ability you have is God's gift. Who you are, personality-wise, that's God's gift to you. So even though there are these areas that it says that in coming to faith and the Holy Spirit being present in our life, there is this enablement, it's not the end all. It's just an enhancement of the package God's already given you. Because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are already God's workmanship, and he gives you some extra tools. But it all is his gift to you, and it's all meant for him to use. Does that make sense to you? Let me just quickly go on and talk about the third area, and that's your experiences. God shapes you by all of your experiences, good and bad. And in shaping you, he uses them for good. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, and I I could point to my own life and our own life as a family as evidence of this, that your greatest ministry will probably grow out of your greatest hurt. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. That's a calling right there. Everything that you experience, both good and even more so the bad, the heartache, the failures, all teach you and equip you to minister to others who are experiencing pain and hurt and experiencing those same things. That's all part of how God shapes you. That's ultimately what it means that he's in it for the good. He'll redeem it. He'll use it. 
I want to wrap up by showing you a video that we showed at our men's small group of a man named Tyrone Flowers. I think the purpose of it will speak for itself. Would you just watch it, please? It was like everything slowed down. I saw the gun. I saw him pulling it out, 357 Magnum. The trigger being pulled, getting shot in my shoulder, in my neck, in my hand. I was told I would never walk again. I just started asking God, why me? I was born out of wedlock to teenage parents. My mother and my father was unable to provide for me. And my grandmother stepped in to raise me and her 12 other children. At the age of seven, my grandmother became ill and I was removed from her custody and placed in foster care. And that's when my life for the next 10 years went on a pretty challenging journey. You know, been placed in a basement overnight, sitting up on that top step, just bamming on the door, praying and wishing that they would let me out. I was told I would never amount to anything. I wouldn't be anything. Raised in poverty, we've always struggled when it came to having the resources to meet a lot of our basic needs. I was stealing from the corner liquor store milk and cereal, and that was pretty much my diet. At the age of 10, my father was murdered. He was shot to death. And often people would always tell me, you're gonna be just like your father, either dead or in jail. I remember learning something, and that's how to look good on the outside. You can have yourself well-groomed, but on the inside, I was going through so much pain. I went through three different foster homes, residential treatment facility, eight different juvenile reformatory school, and I was sent to the largest Butte Center in the state of Missouri. This is really your last chance in order to get yourself together. All I desired out of life was just my basic needs to be met. So here I am, 17, wanting to do things the right way, but didn't know how. My senior year, I got on a bus to go out to a friend of mine's house. When I got on the bus, I got in a verbal confrontation with a guy I played basketball with. I got off the bus, and he got off the bus shortly behind me. I threw up my guards thinking we were going to fight, and uh, he pulled out a 357 Magnum. I just remember getting shot in my shoulder, in my neck, in my hands. I was instantly paralyzed because I didn't feel any pain, and I almost died that night. I was told I would never walk again. But the main thing that was ringing in my head was getting this person back, revenge. My goal was either to put him in a wheelchair or kill him. And during this time, I had questions for God, like, why me? He basically told me, in order to be forgiven, you have to forgive. And I knew that was I would have to forgive the guy that shot me. That was, you know, the only way I was going to uh, be able to have this relationship with God. And that really helped me because it was the first time I really had that type of conversation with God. Now, what was really burning in my heart was why did God save me? Why did I go through the things I went through? What is my purpose? I ended up getting a, a full ride scholarship to the University of Missouri-Columbia. 
I had to write a paper and I decided to write it on the juvenile justice system. And I went back and visited some of the same juvenile institutions I was in as a kid. And this one kid came up to me and I told him my testimony. Then he shared his life with me. And I went to the staff and I basically said, I didn't know that this particular kid had went through the things he went through. And the staff said, we didn't either. So I thought the kid had lied to me. And that's when the kid looked at me and said, Mr. Flowers, I didn't lie to you. I've been lying to them. And that bothered me. I said, why me? And he said, because we shared the same cell. That one common denominator allowed him to open up and share his experience with me. And when I came outside, it was this lady, I, I just, I believe to this day, she was an angel. She approached me and said, you know, I don't know where you came from or who you are, what you plan on doing. She said, but you have a gift in working with these kids. At that moment, I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. God had just placed in my spirit that this was it. I dedicated my life to work with kids. I realized that if you're operating in God's perfect will, you're not disabled because if you're operating in his perfect will, he's gonna enable you to do whatever he calls you to do, even if that's disabling you. I realized that the kids that I was working with, all of them are going through something that I've already experienced. Parents are incarcerated or dead, grew up in poverty, trouble in school, the lack of support emotionally, mentally, physically, uh, educationally. So I knew God had equipped me uniquely to work with high-risk urban youth. I realized that it's not about me. It's about what God can do through me to change the lives of others. My name is Tyrone Flowers, and I am second. There's a lot we could unpack there. But what I want you to focus on is his last statement. I've learned that if you're in the center of God's will, you are not disabled. Because if you are living your life according to God's plan, he will enable you for that purpose, even if it means disabling you. God uses it all. Every one of you is God's workmanship, not just past, but present tense. He is shaping you and preparing you. Your liabilities, your limitations, your foibles, your failures, your heartaches, your gifts, your strengths, they're all meant for an eternal purpose. Ultimately, every one of us will give our lives to something. A career, a hobby, fame, wealth, Ultimately, we all will give our lives to something. There's only one thing to give all that you are to that will last forever. So here's my, my challenge to you. What is God putting on your heart? What is it you love to do? What is in front of you right now in your neighborhood, in this area, perhaps in this church, perhaps in your life group? But what's in front of you that you could just step into right now and begin to make a difference. You see, here's the deal. The church doesn't come up with enough jobs for everybody. You create the jobs as you release what God has called you to. And we welcome that here.
And we encourage you to respond to the heart and the voice of God and get busy. Let's stand together. Let me just pray for you and bless you, and then I'll dismiss you. Father, I thank you for the idea here. What a privilege. You set your purposes in such a way that you invest and equip and then put us as part of it. What a great blessing. I pray for those here that need to hear just that encouragement, that they're a workmanship of God and that nothing that they've gone through is being wasted, and that there's no inferiority, no disablement if they are in the center of your will. And I pray, Father, we'll recognize being in the center of your will is about being in relationship with you and stepping into the opportunities and needs and uh, investing in the lives of people around us for you and for your glory. And so, Father, I, I pray out of this will come some real transformational steps in each of our lives. Dismiss us now with the hope that comes from being called and being loved and being created and being allowed to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.